Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers Podcast with your host, Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers Podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics, including health, fitness, and training strategies, to name a few. If you enjoy the show and wish to support, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon or wish to make a one-time donation, please visit the show PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPO pod. Links to both of those can be found in the show notes. Also, consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform and on our video version of the show hosted on YouTube. For updates and notifications, please visit my social media channels at Zach Bitter on Instagram, at ZBitter on Twitter, and at Zach.Bitter on Facebook. If you wish to sponsor the show or have any other questions or feedback, please reach out to me at HPOPodcast at gmail.com. Yeah, it was, uh, yeah, so for... Um... For my schedule, uh, the race is December 12th. It's actually the first, not well, not the first 24-hour I've been in, but it'll be the first time I'm training specifically for a 24-hour event and uh, planning on staying out for the entirety of 24 hours. So it'll be kind of a little bit of a new, a new experience for me in terms of just the way I've kind of trained for it, as well as, you know, the, just the strategy within it. So it'll be, it'll be equally fun and torturous, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I uh, I can only imagine. Like, so when you're going through the prep for a 24 hour race, like, is there people that you call on? Is it just previous experience? You know, is there, I don't know, I guess a, a front edge or, or a leading expert on, you know, how to fuel, how to train for this kind of beast? Yeah, that's a really good question, actually. The, so there's, there's some precedent, I would say. Uh, it's, you know, anything ultra marathon related, I would say, is still a little bit kind of gray area in terms of what you see from a, real strong scientific backing in terms of like what works and what doesn't work relative to like Olympic distance things where they've had a lot of the funding to make, you know, you do really good research and kind of figure out yeah, what right. works and what doesn't. So there's still a lot of guessing and all, which to me just makes it just that much more individual Then you kind of got to figure out what works for you. So like, I mean, we've, there's examples of folks going out like super fast and just like really giving back a ton of, a ton of distance in the second half. And then there's folks who like, even split it almost where they're running basically the same pace the entire time. And then, you know, fueling is the same way. There's uh, the guy who's got the world record right now. He was pretty notorious for just eating like just an insane amount of food during these events where, you know, most people are going to run like a calorie deficit during the event and make up for it afterwards. And he, he's got some events where it seemed like he was taking in almost exactly what he was burning, which is just insane for me to think about. Cause I'm, I'm kind of on the other side of the spectrum. I try to I want to get in enough so I don't feel like I'm hitting lows from just, you know, running the running energy too low. Uh, but I also want to try to make sure I'm not just bombarding my digestive system for 24 hours with a bunch of like engineering fuels and things like that, that could just backfire on you from a digestive standpoint too. So it's, uh, it's a, it's kind of, it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting thing to kind of tackle because there is that kind of openness to what has worked or a variety of what has worked. So ultimately you got to come up with a strategy and then stick to it and then kind of learn from it and go from there. So my kind of mindset going in is I'm going to prepare for, you know, to try to hit 180 plus miles, but also know that priority number one has to be just finishing it. So I have like this uh, foundation of something to build off for future ones. Cause I, I, it's an event I want to kind of fine tune over the years as well. So. 
Yeah, that's a good point. Like a, a bit of a starter, you know, to kind of throw your stake in the ground and, and be able to understand what worked, what didn't work, what you'd be bringing around to. And... Yeah. And, and that's the part I love most about the sport actually is just kind of having that baseline amount of information that's really specific to yourself and then saying, okay, here's maybe like the three main things that went really well that I need to carry forward. Here are the three things that just went terribly and I need to really adjust that and figure out where you can find, you know, minutes or maybe hours in some cases on some of these courses or in these timed events, uh, you know, at different points throughout. So it'll be, it'll be a lot of learning, I'm sure, but it will also be kind of, kind of a fun experience to, to get under the belt. Yeah. There's really two kind of schools of like professional hockey players. There's the guy that for 20 years has used what they use and they will not change. They will not waver in terms of curve, what skates they use doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. And then there's the school of thought that there's, always something bigger, better, faster out there. And, you know, I'm kind of in that tinkerer group where I'm always convinced that, you know, there's a curve that, you know, is, is would be a, uh, you know, cleaner lie for me. There's a new skate profile, you know, that I didn't know about yet. And it, it'll drive you. I don't know. I kind of bounce back between every year. I say, this is the year I'm sticking with what I pick in the summer. And I'm not making any changes the rest of the season. If I don't feel good, it's nervous system stuff. It's, it has nothing to do with the equipment. And then all of a sudden, you know, I, I got an equipment rep tell me what's, you know, new and cool out there. And I'm like, <laughs> a new toy. <laughs> oh, that's it. Exactly. You're, you're, you're like me. Sometimes curiosity can be your biggest strength and your biggest weakness. So true. It's, it's good to have the open mind and kind of find what's going to work best for you. But at a certain point, you got to figure out what's going to, what it's going to be. And then, and then just drive with it. So, um, cool. I mean, uh, Let's let's back up for a second here, Connor, because I let's think do it. Uh, let's do it. <laughs> if the listeners don't know, we've met before. So we've had a little bit of a friendly chatter. I was actually on Connor's podcast back in May before I did my 12 hour 100 mile treadmill. And uh, we've stayed in touch between Connor's a very interesting person to me. I think you'll find the same. He is a uh, professional hockey player. He plays in the NHL. Uh, and uh, it's going to be exciting, I think, to dive into just a little bit about your background, I think, Connor, just how you got into hockey, what was intriguing to it, kind of how you progressed through like early ages. I would imagine you started at a young age. And then ultimately, I'm assuming realizing your dream of being being in the big the big leads for hockey and, uh, you know, making a career out of being a professional athlete and all that stuff. Yeah, Zach, we'll start there. Um, first off, thanks for having me on. Uh, <laughs> awesome to reconnect again. And, you know, I understand you know, everything went, you know, tremendously well in terms of your goals for the treadmill run that, you know, I know you were preparing so heavily for. So congratulations there. As far as hockey, I started at four, uh, four years old, starting to learn to skate, things like that. I was blessed to have, there was a rink about two minutes away from our house. And my dad was really the pioneer of the hockey dream, I guess. He, he kind of grew up around the streets of Chicago, walking to ponds with friends and, you know, sticking skates over their shoulders, looking for frozen ice and uh, frozen water. That's what ice is called and, and being able to throw a game together. And uh, so he wanted to bring it, you know, uh, to our family. We have three boys in our family. We all played. It's a deep, uh, you know, connection point for all of us, you know, Carrick boys. And then and that was always a conversation around me, even from a very young age was someone's going to play in the NHL. Someone's going to play pro hockey. Why not you? And we just had a, a pretty serious, um, Hunger for development. It wasn't a rock we were trying to look under for an edge. You know, I definitely had uh, a ton of fun and, you know, all that. But my dad had no problem, you know, pushing me and, and us boys. And, you know, I've been lucky enough to call it a career. Next year will be my eighth year. It's gone by 
ridiculously fast, but um, yeah, man, there's a whole bunch of stops along the way we can, we can get into, but that's, that's my origin in hockey. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause I think uh, I've had a couple athletes on this podcast in the past who were very young, in my opinion, for just like, you know, to take on, you know, just all that comes along with the professional career. Uh, and I find it really interesting because I always, one thing I've liked to do a lot in the last few years is I just try to really kind of put myself in a position of someone else and see, like, just ask myself, honestly, even if it's just with me, just think what I've been able to navigate that just from like the mental side of things, much less, because I'm obviously there's a physical component to these sports, especially something like hockey, but just being able to like, cause you're 26, right? Connor. Yep. 26, okay. yeah. 26. So your eighth year in the NHL. And, um, you know, that means that you were 18 when you started, which, uh, <laughs> when I think of myself at age 18 and, you know, signing, getting a job, much less signing a contract with a professional sports team, whether it be minor leagues or major leagues or anything in between would been a, a lot for, I think me to process. Can you talk to us a bit about just kind of what was that like after, you know, obviously starting at age four gave you a lot of time, you know, 14 years to really get ingrained with the sport and make that part of your personality. But like, what is it like at age 18 to think like, okay, I'm at the precipice of reaching a massive life goal. And I, I may be only a fifth of the way through my life. Well, it came, I realized very young. Uh, I believed that there would be like this crazy evolution to myself every time I reached a goal, like I'm very goal driven. And I remember I committed to the University of Michigan originally. So I'm playing at Team USA, the National Team Development Program. It's called junior hockey, which is, you know, a whole other separate conversation. But basically, I was a stud in youth hockey, so I get chosen for Team USA. It's my junior, senior year of high school. I play there both years. That's where I eventually get drafted out of, to the Washington Capitals. And, you know, I'm able to all of a sudden realize that you're not this, like, different person when you get to the other side of a dream. You know, there's a little bit of like a, an expectation hangover there. You wake up and you're still the same guy and you're not, you know, this crazy, dramatically different player. So that kind of always, I guess, brought me back to the process, which is, you know, I, I've spent a lot of time learning. This is really what I, I know and love and, and really enjoy doing every day. The accomplishments are great, but they're more of a byproduct than the end all uh, be all. I made the Washington Capitals out of training camp. I was actually... 19 so I'll be turning 27 in, in, in April so I'm you know anyway it's my eighth year and uh I was not expected to make the club so if you're ever in a trivia scenario I was the first player out of the 2012 entry, uh, NHL entry draft outside the first round to play an NHL game I was a fifth round pick and so to make it at 19 is really an advanced track I really wasn't on pace to do this by the time of my draft day but I had a good year uh after my draft year and all of a sudden I had, uh, I think it was Steve Richmond was the gentleman's name in player development. He grabbed me at like one of the rookie camps and said, Hey, you're doing really well. And like really well, like, you're going to play in the NHL someday. And I'm like, wow, I, I couldn't stop smiling ear to ear, you know, lifelong dream. And this is a decision maker. This is, you know, not my dad telling me I'm going to play in the NHL someday, which, you know, is still nice of him to say, but, and so he said, no, like you can make our team this year and I need you to start getting your head around that because it's going to happen. And there's so many growth opportunities that were coming my way that I didn't even know. I, so I, I broke into the league. I kind of got sent down to the minors right after. I uh, was able to get back up, you know, after Christmas time and things like that. And it's, 
it's a lot. There's a financial element. You're trying to learn, you know, how to best handle your money, how to best handle your taxes. There's a, a play uh, upgrade. The NHL is just so sneaky. Guys are so smart, so fast. Uh, you've got to learn so many tricks of the trade that, you know, as a young player, you just, you haven't had to before. You haven't had to evolve that way. Um, and I think I just really dove all in. I, I didn't really have any crazy plan. I just figured everything else out on the, on the move and by studying other people that I wanted to, you know, replicate the success that they had. And it's been able to carry me out, you know, carry me to the level of success I've been able to have year in, year out. Yeah. You know, I think the other thing that's interesting about, about your story and I think it's probably a, a few, a lot of athletes too, where you get maybe identified at a relatively early age that, okay, you've got some skills here. If you put in the work, you know, the end game is, you know, to make it to the big leagues or the end game is to make a profession out of this. And I find it, I always find it interesting because my trajectory through essentially becoming a, like a professional endurance athlete was, was kind of the opposite of that, where like I was good at running in high school and college, but I was never like, oh yeah, you'll be a 5k or 10k Olympic athlete someday. It was always, I was far enough off from that where, uh, you know, that wasn't really an expectation of mine. So like, I think I learned some of these lessons that you probably learned at a much earlier age later in my life, um, which may have been good for me, <laughs> but uh, uh, I think it's really interesting to kind of think about just the pressure that comes with that at an early age too. Like, you know, you're, even if it is just your dad at first saying, okay, uh, I think you have a shot at making it into the bigs and uh, that's our goal here. Did, did that give you pressure did you feel like that was like almost like a little overwhelming at times or did you feel like, Oh, well, this is my, this is where I'm trying to get to. And you kind of just laser in on that and, and almost tunnel vision that, okay, now I have this order of operations I need to do from today to eventually making it to the NHL. I was so focused. There was no difference between Connor Carrick, the person and Connor Carrick, the hockey player. It was totally integrated into my identity. I, lived, breathed and, and slept, you know, for hockey, everything. It was a 24 hour work schedule, you know, even from a young age, I would say, you know, that did set me up for when hockey was no good to me though, you know, some dark days. And that's where, when I started to become responsible for the quality of life for others. So for example, I'm, I'm married. That was a big learning process for me. It was very normal for me as a young player through junior and, and younger in my pro years. If I played poorly, I would throw a fit. I would be upset. Food wouldn't taste as good. I wouldn't sleep good. And I believed that I deserved it, you know, and, and I had to, I, I deserved this wallowing and I, I had to sit with it until I could rectify it and slay the dragon again. And what I realized was I was really dragging other people through the mud of my career uh, in a way that, you know, they didn't really sign up for or didn't deserve. Um, you know, so that was a big one. And then I think I enjoy learning about momentum. I think it's one of the reasons I wanted to start the podcast was I realized we're always, uh, you know, one small win away from having momentum on our side or conversely, you know, really uh, living out of alignment, you know, just, you know, one day at a time kind of set us up for some negative momentum. So I think that that's been my obsession with that and, and my, you know, desire to get that on my side uh, has been a good learning process for me. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I, I want to dive into some of the stuff around just like how you prepare yourself for, 
for, you know, a season or just in general, especially when you ingrain your life into it so much, but I do want to touch on, touch on what you just said. Cause I think it's really interesting. I think, you know, I've definitely had phases in my life where I've leaned really heavily on one aspect of it, whether it be running or something else career based. And when you put so much emphasis on that one thing, if that one thing goes badly, you end up, you know, like you said, feeling really miserable at yourself, just like you feel great when things go well. And it almost puts you in this really polarizing position where everything is invested in this one activity. And what I ended up finding out, especially after the first few years where I kind of stepped away from my original teaching profession to focus more on running was that for me to be my best athletically, I have to have other irons in the fire in order to just give myself a something to kind of like put the training and the racing and just all the mental and physical stress and anxiety that kind of comes with that on the back burner from time to time and, you know, find wins in other areas of life too. And I, I joke around, I say I wouldn't make a great, like just pure professional athlete where that's all I did because I would find myself probably either overtraining or uh, find myself in a position where I'm thinking, overthinking certain things too much uh, is, is that kind of the direction you thought to when you like started your podcast and, uh, you know, ultimately like just added other interests in your life outside of just hockey? It really is. And, and what you'll find too, and it's different sport to sport, but hockey, we play 82 games and with, you know, the preseason there's seven or eight and then the playoffs are seven game series all the way up to you know 28. If you go all the way to the Stanley cup final, we're talking, we're talking over hundred games a year uh, by the mm-hmm. time you add it all up. And the conversation at the rank is often the same. You know, we're, we're talking about X's and O's. We're talking about, you know, how we want to play as a group. And that's where, that's where it should happen. Um, that should be the content of, you know, the, the coach's discussion with the team that day, whatever. But I wanted to participate and sort of just broaden my horizon in terms of the types of people I talk to, the quality of people. I want to talk about, you know, things uh, from different disciplines with people. I mean, I think of you when we're training – and I'm like, you know, wow. Uh, f- for example, our rollout the other day, we we're doing a, an ab rollout at the end of our training session. And it was a one and a half reps for 14 reps. So, so it's really like 28 sort of um, flexes with the ab wheel. And I'm thinking that's a lot of, that's a lot of ab rollouts. And then I don't know, you picture your, my podcast with Brandy Hetrick, you know, the CEO of TRX, who was a Navy SEAL for 14 years or someone like yourself who's on a treadmill for 12 well, the 14 reps doesn't sound like that much anymore now, does it? You know, so you have this resolve, these reserves that you can pull from. And I think that it's really just about resiliency. You know, can you uh, reach into other areas of yourself? You know, we're, we're, you wouldn't create a, like an asset allocation like this if you were an investor. Well, we are the investment. That's what we are as athletes and as people. So I just found that uh, diversifying a little bit has served me really well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's, those are some great points. I think uh, when I think about just uh, just kind of the access to information we have and, I, and just the access to other people that we have nowadays. And, you know, there's always the negatives that come with like social media and whatnot. But man, it's so awesome that you can just like, if you want a little bit of motivation, you can just flip your phone open and find someone who's doing something incredibly inspiring and all of a sudden kind of light that that fire within yourself. And I know I've I've done workouts before now where, 
had I not like quick listened to a specific podcast with someone motivating or saw something really motivating on like Instagram or something like that. And then decide, okay, I'm going to get this workout done, even though I was thinking about bailing on it and then having it end up going really, really well. And afterwards just laughing about how I was going to, how I could try to mentally kind of psych myself out at first. So I think, uh, I think that's just a cool part of like just modern society now is that you can really leverage that stuff and, and lean on other people's experiences a lot, a lot more readily than we maybe would have been able to in the past. Totally agree. And I mean, if you know, you want to present me with, I don't know, the percentage of speed gain, whatever statistic, uh, if I run this set of sprints, you know, that might, sure, that might fire me up. But the power of like a human story and the trials and tribulations is so available now with social media. And that's how I felt. I just was, I looked up to the giants in the podcasting world doing different things, whether they were tech giants, business moguls, uh, elite athletes, and just the generosity of them to, to share their story, you know, with people like, you know, you and I was so motivating for me that I wanted to get in the game. I wanted to tug on these people's shirts and, and get an hour with them uh, and have some of their greatness rub off on me. And I also recognize as a current player, you know, I have, uh, you know, a platform that I am that role model to somebody someday, you know, there's some player watching a game who says Connor Carrick is their favorite player. Well, I want to be more accessible to that, you know, young hockey player or person and, and lend myself as a, as a guide to help them do the great things that they're bound to do. So I think it's, uh, it's like anything, right? Perspective is reality. So what's your relationship with social media? Like it says more about you than it does social media for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's uh wise words for sure. Um, let's chop into uh, just kind of the, the, maybe the nuts and bolts of what it takes to be a pro or even just a hockey player in general. Um, I want to kind of, there's a couple of like areas I would really love to explore with you. And one is just kind of like, what is the, what is kind of the supplementary type training that, that you would have to do kind of like in the weight room or uh, you know, out off the rink to kind of prepare your body for what is going to happen on the rink. And then if we could talk a bit about just what types of stuff you need to do to stay sharp on skates, cause you're doing a sport where it's hard enough to play hockey or it would be hard enough to play hockey without the skates. There's enough like nuances to the sport. I think that it would be difficult even without having to add the element where you're essentially moving around on ice with, uh, with, uh, blades underneath your feet. Uh, so like maybe the aspect of that, like how do you develop the skating and what skills are you trying to develop for that to make you a better, a better player? And then uh, ultimately I'd love to get into kind of what you do nutritionally to kind of make sure your body is uh, rebuilding after you break it down and having the energy to kind of get into these, these big hundred plus sometimes game or game per year type of settings. Yeah, that's a great question, Zach. And you know, so usually normal offseason, say you're, you exit the playoffs April through June based on your playoff exit. Uh, the first week, you usually lay low. You know, you go through the adrenal fatigue of a long year. There's a lot on your plate. It's, it's nice to have the break in routine, although it's, it's really difficult to know which way is up that week, just given the, the dramatic change in schedule. And then I'll get into the gym, you know, train. Uh, it's a ton of rehabilitation work. So hips and shoulders, we're always getting hit in our shoulders, uh, thoracic spine. We're always rotating one, you know, particular way we're rotational athletes. So we have a lot of the same issues that creep up in baseball, for example, and, and hitters or pitchers just because of the one, one side torque, like I'm a right shot. There's certain sort of like postural issues uh, there that we'll try and fix. 
and then just our hips from trying to clench on top of the skates all the time. Sometimes you get a bad edge, uh, you lose an edge, whatever. Our hips have to be extremely durable and pliable, frankly, uh, given whatever happens. So that's kind of the first month. Can we posturally start to rebuild uh, and start to lay the, the, the groundwork for the train that's going to come in the coming months? So that'll be, let's call it the end of May. June, we'll start to, I usually like to skate a little bit earlier than most guys. I'll skate three or four times a week. A lot of uh, glide work, trying to really improve the amount of ice I can cover per stride. You'll find that a lot of times skating isn't necessarily a quick feet thing. It's really a separation thing. How much, you know, think of Usain Bolt running 100 meters. Like he's just, you know, he's a monster with those long legs. So that's what we're trying to accomplish. We play a sport where glide is something you can, you can use to your advantage, uh, you know, unlike running. And then, you know, that schedule kind of hold true where I'm on the ice three, four days a week. I'm in the gym five, six, with probably two to three of those being really exerting uh, workout styles versus, uh, you know, three or four a week are usually a little bit more restorative. Fast forward all the way to uh, July, August. I'm on the ice now four or five times a week really trying to take the skill set stuff uh, to heart. So up until then, you're really just trying to improve top speed and, and strength so that you can, the quality of athlete that comes in the NHL now, which is so much more explosive. Uh, so you've kind of got to, like I know all the reads and the angles and the positioning and the poise to play in the league, but you've also got to remain, you know, it's the athlete that goes. A lot of times you see older players that fizzle out of the game as uh, their particular skill sets are deteriorating or their ability to play with that level of jump that's demanded and able to be executed by younger players. Uh, usually it gets a player, you know, outside uh, the league looking in. And then August, battle test. You really just start to compete and really start to pay attention to where you are on the ice, get get away from your skill stuff uh, and really start to make game reads. And then, you know, come uh, September, you're, you're flying starting the regular season. That's a normal year. And, and that – we're probably in the August phase right now, betting on a January 1st start. Hey folks, this episode of HPO Podcast is brought to you by one of my personal sponsors, Egg Weights. Egg Weights develops ergonomic light training weights that have been used by U.S. Olympic athletes, Joe Rogan, professional athletes, mixed martial arts champions, and world-class boxers to help improve things like arm drive, balance and timing, sprint speed, stride length, stride frequency, lower arm carriage, and optimal rhythmic pattern. They use a rare, dense metal that allows them to make their products small and ergonomic without sacrificing the weight of their tools, allowing them to fit perfectly into the palm of your hand. Personally, I've been working with them on their running-focused products, including the Running Pod and their newest addition to the lineup of the Massage Toolkit. I have used the running pods to help improve my right arm carriage, which can slip out of form from time to time when I get fatigue at the end of races. Their new massage toolkit is the most sturdy and adaptable massage tool I've ever used. An added perk of this massage kit is you can easily adjust and personalize it to the specific needs with the extra add-on pieces that simply screw into the sturdy foundational piece of the tool. It tracks smoothly over skin or clothing, so it works uh, regardless of whether you are in a warm weather climate or a cold weather climate. Uh, please consider checking them out at eggweights.com. That's E-G-G-W-E-I-G-H-T-S.com. 
They're currently offering up a sweet Black Friday deal while supplies last, which slashes an extra 15% off site-wide, including their new massage tool kit. So head over to eggweights.com, check out what they got, let me know what you think. Now, back to the show. One thing I wanted to ask about too, because uh, I imagine there's a lot of this in hockey as there is with most professional sports, but uh, like like a huge chunk of America over the the whole COVID experience, uh, I dove into the the Michael Jordan documentary, and one of the episodes I found like really interesting was when they they I don't know if you saw it or not, but uh, um, yeah, I've watched it multiple times. Okay, cool, great, great. Uh, I won't be tricking you with this question then. <laughs> um, with uh, when they talked about Dennis Rodman and how on defense he would uh, you know he would spend time before the game watching and researching some of the players from their team, because he said he could like gauge off the way they would shoot the ball, where the ball was going to bounce off the rim if they missed. So he would know ahead of time when someone like pull up for a jump shot, where to position himself to be in the best spot to get the rebound versus maybe someone taller or stronger than him who could normally just kind of muscle him out. Is there element, cause I know you're a defenseman in hockey. Is there an element like that in hockey where you're watching like other players techniques or their kind of system and trying to preempt like when they're breaking towards you, like, okay, I want to position myself here because chances are they're going to try to do this and that sort of stuff. All the time. Um, and, and so I guess to piggyback up off the, the last question, Dennis Rodman would put in the art that is studying the game. Right. But he was also a monster. So that's mm-hmm. kind of where our training in the summer, like you're trying to be, I can study rebounding all day. Dennis Rodman's a foot and a half taller than I am. He's going to win. You know what I mean? So the whole point is we can't get taller, but how can we get faster and stronger so that we can do these freakish things uh, that's demanded of, you know, uh, pro athletes and of NHLers uh, across the league. Then it's an art. And I talked about this a little bit when I was coming in the league where there's little tricks of the trade and, and rhythms to the NHL game that you're just not taught until you experientially have to learn it. So for example, uh, off of face-off, we have a face-off, you know, oftentimes after a stoppage in play and in the defensive zone, interference is a penalty in hockey. You're not allowed to interfere with somebody who doesn't have the puck, but for whatever reason, off the zone draws, you're able to, in the NHL, kind of get in the way just enough where you own your ice. You're not bothering the person physically, you know, in, in any outward way or obvious way, but you're just kind of picking them so that your defense partner can go pick up a puck and, you know, flip it down the ice or clear it or, you know, do whatever faceoff play, you know, your team or your coach is called. So like the first time I ever ran, we would do this strong side out, you know, where my D-man was basically going to go back and get the puck and flip it out. And I had to kind of box my guy out for a moment on the wall before you know this would happen and so my d partner says you know hey sees make sure you box that guy out you know we're gonna go strong side out so, okay so i give him like a one one thousand and i don't want to take interference penalty so i let the guy go and he goes and smokes my d partner smokes him just hammers him we get back to the bench he gives me you know hey what the hell was that uh, i'm like i picked him for a second man he's like no you really got to pick him so we go out and we go to do the same thing I do the same thing. I give it like a one, 1,002. I let the guy go. He goes and smokes my D partner again. <laughs> and I just, I didn't understand that this was like, maybe I did, I'd, I'd watched the NHL all my life, but I didn't see the nuance. And, 
it's a beautiful game that way where you are trying to both study what are my own tells, what are things that I'm doing, you know, failing to do on the ice, right? Like coach has team video. He's not necessarily doing Connor Carrick video every day. So it's my job, you know, to try and pick that apart and see particularly where I'm missing open ice. I'm not skating into open ice, you know, aggressively. Uh, and then, you know, what areas of the ice am I not seeing? Are there middle plays I'm missing? Are there weak side plays I'm missing? Um, that type it, there were two people that I really related to in that uh, documentary was uh, Dennis Rodman and sort of his art of rebounding. And then Steve Kerr, where Steve Kerr talks about how, you know, in order to honor the stardom, the superstar of someone like Michael Jordan, he had to work so hard to just earn that one opportunity where Jordan would get him the ball. He nails that huge playoff shot. Uh, you know, I, I looked up to those two, you know, in that element of their professionalism massively after that documentary. Yeah, it's really interesting. And you actually perfectly segued into what my next question was going to be when you brought up Steve Kerr, because when I think of Steve Kerr, I obviously think of, uh, you know, him posting up for three with the Chicago Bulls. But I also think of him as the coach, uh, as a coach who, to a degree, I think, changed the league in a way where it made it it was already transitioning this way, I think. But like, you know, you had like the era of the like seven foot plus center who was just a diesel, like, you know, like Shaq style. And then that kind of phased away where now all of a sudden the center had to be a little more wiry and be able to kind of come out and guard on the perimeter and also be able to take a jump shot. And it almost like teased out the role of the real big center. And you saw those guys either having to transition their game or kind of lose their spot in the, in the big leagues. Uh, Is there stuff like that in, in hockey too, from, from your time spent in it where like you kind of thought at one point, okay, I've got a grasp of what it is to be a position player on a hockey team and really fine tune it. But then all of a sudden, like the league or the way things get played or new philosophies come in and all you also, you have to evolve along with it and change the way you play, change the way you do things in order to meet the new demands. Absolutely. I mean, the speed and the skill hockey's done a little bit with basketball. They were basketball and hockey. Both used to be uh, big and slow and tough. And then, you know, uh, basketball went small and skilled. Hockey's getting small and skilled. And I think both of them are going to do what's, you know, immediately next, which is eventually there'll be a bunch of like monsters playing out there and it'll be big and skilled, you know? Yeah. So the game's going to, it's instead of Steph Curry shooting three, the guy's going to be seven, six, you know, uh, you know, smashing threes from beyond the arc. Hockey's the same way. The game has gotten so fast. Yeah. For example, Connor McDavid is our, you know, best player in our, in our game. It plays for the Edmonton Oilers the speed at which he's able to skate was unfathomable seven to 10 years ago. I mean, there was no one in in NHL history and there's been some elite skiers just in terms of pure takeaway speed. Uh, The guy just, he's gone, he's here today, gone tomorrow. He's out of sight. So really the definition, when I first came in the league, I was considered a good skater, a good skating defenseman, fluid, smooth, well, what's a good skiing defense going to look like in five years, in 10 years? And that's how long I want to play. And so, you know, I really do uh, try to determine based off of my analysis on that, like what are the greatest ROI items to, you know, skill sets to train day in, day out. For me right now, it's the skating and the puck skills. Guys are so surgical now with their puck skills and the game is just getting so elastic, so fast, so explosive uh, where, 
you got to be able to you, you can know all the right reads but if you don't have the skating to get there to, to execute it's irrelevant mm -hmm. yeah it's really interesting i think it's uh it's uh it's really fun to hear i think from a person who's actually in it to like how that all kind of alters and stuff like that and and what you end up doing to to try to you know keep up more or less and i agree i think like all these sports now are getting to the point where you can't expect your rookie year to look anything like the middle of the year and the middle of the or your career look like the end of your career and you always have to be readapting with it and and with that sort of stuff and and that kind of brings me into a, a topic i think some of our listeners are really going to like to hear because i do have uh, a fair bit of folks here who are really focused on kind of strength work and uh, lift weight lifting power lifting type stuff as well um, as we've gone down that avenue from time to time with guests so what is like a typical strength routine look like for, for someone like yourself in hockey? Are you uh, doing a lot of, uh, or what type of weightlifting are you doing? Are you sticking to kind of the core stuff like heavy lifting or is there a variety of a whole bunch of different things that get you where you need to be? It's a, there's a variety, but I'll, I'll explain what we're going through now. So right now I'm on a four day block um, and we'll kind of go through an eccentric lifting component, an isometric sort of phase, uh, a concentric and then we'll play with the loads based off of that so I actually wasn't here in New Jersey for the eccentric so I'll just talk about the time I've been here so right now we're doing we do a lot of like the PRI, PRI I think it's postural restoration institute sort of uh, postural aiding I guess you know and what we're trying to do and then we'll do a lot of our cars you know like controlled active uh, range of motions um, I think that's what they're called We'll do those primarily for hip, shoulder, uh, thoracic, ankles. Our ankles actually really struggle from being inside a ski boot all the time. And then when we train, um, we try to do a lot of our big lifts uh, earlier in the lift or earlier in the week. So we have uh, something at the Devil's facility called a 1080. Uh, it's a you know big, expensive piece of equipment that can measure our water. So we, you take this 3D strap. And we'll do it a couple different ways a week. We'll do like a lateral push. Uh, we'll do a crossover push, and then I think there's one I'm missing. Yeah, so we'll do the lateral on Mondays. We'll do the crossover on Fridays. Uh, rear foot elevated back squats because we're a single leg sport primarily, so we don't do a lot of bilateral work, tons of uh, unilateral. We'll do a uh, unilateral squat on Tuesdays normally, and we'll, we'll do a bilateral deadlift on uh, Thursdays strictly for the post-activation potentiation for the jump. So that's kind of the big meat and potatoes of our lift, like lift lower body uh, to be able to jump and sprint fast and then do that. That's always the beginning after our mobility work. And then sort of the second half of the lift uh, will be a lot of core work, a lot of hinging uh, and some like accessory sort of upper body stuff. So our game is mostly played, you know, belly button down, uh, but you do want to have strong, you know, uh, lats, you know, so they can pull your scaps down and, and be in a good spot and be ready to take contact. You do still have to, you know, battle and, and out leverage people in front of the net so that there's, uh, we will bench press a little bit just so we can activate, you know, that uh, pushing mechanism uh, of our body to be able to, you know, launch a medicine ball, for example, as, as hard as we can and, and then there's always the conditioning component, which is mostly done on the ice just because it's such a unique demand. I think that that's been in the past, one of the most frustrating things I've done as an athlete is try to train, you know, so sort of the aerobic anaerobic uh, recovery systems off the ice. 
just to not have it transfer the way that I want it to. So now I do most of my explosive work off the ice, um, a little bit on the ice where it's particularly focused on that. Otherwise I just stick with the skill stuff and then the conditioning is done on the ice. Awesome. Yeah. It's uh, I, I'm always fascinated with like, I got more fascinated, I should say with strength training and stuff when I really started to understand what, was good strength training protocol, I think for an endurance athlete, because it's like, you know, you think of endurance athletes and the first thing you think is these tiny little people who are just like running around and like, why would they ever be in a weight room? And then, you know, the science evolves a bit and you find out that the running is an incredibly imbalancing activity in the sense that you can become like quad dominant and your posterior chain and things like that can get weaker. So there's good reason to be in the weight room from an injury prevention standpoint and just a balance and running economy standpoint. And when you keep kind of going down the rabbit hole, you realize it's not just a bunch of lightweights that you would imagine, you know, endurance athletes would be lifting. And it's, I mean, it's relatively light compared to what like real power lifters are doing, but it's, it's heavy relative to what those folks are able to do. And I find it, so I always find it interesting to kind of hear like, well, what is the, what is the protocol from a, from the weight room or the strength side, I think for other athletes and things like that as well. I guess the same thing in hockey, you know, there used to be a joke where, you know, I've never seen anybody, you know, score a goal from the weight room, right? Like that used to kind of be an old adage. And now I think, uh, I don't know if hockey players, we don't necessarily differentiate between causation and correlation. We don't really care that much. We just know we want to be better. So for example, you know, a lot of our elite, elite skaters or, uh, you know, most powerful skaters, That'll show up on if we do a single leg, you know, safety squat lift uh, with a, what's the unit called? Like a tendo unit to measure the bar speed. Your quickest guys are going to have that elasticity. elasticity. It's going to show up in the weight room. So because this player was doing this in the weight room, did it cause elasticity on the ice or does it simply correlate? Well, I don't care. What I know is the fast guys can do this shit off the ice. <laughs> so that's, you know, what I'm after. Um, you know, it's a results business that way. And, very similar where we actually have such a breakdown over the year. Like our sport demands are so specific that the rate of injury, particularly uh, to the hips, is just so high, you know, given we are trying to, you know, uh, stay balanced on these little blades in, in the face of contact that you have to, you know, we get in controlled car crashes every week, you know, when we get hit and things like that. Like we have to have an element of, robustness to our ability to, to handle the rigors day in, day out. And so I think it was something that was innovative 10, 12, maybe even, uh, you know, 15 years ago, but now it's a, it's mandatory. It's non-negotiable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. Um, I want to, I do want to transition into uh, nutrition as well, because I think that's another component that a lot of the listeners like to hear from guys like yourself who are doing things at a very high level is uh, maybe let's start with just hockey in general. Is there, I know with a lot of sports, sometimes there's kind of like a, like a primary, like go to uh, like nutrition protocol where most people are at least going to start there. And then if it doesn't happen to work for you, you can kind of branch off into other angles. Is there kind of like a, a traditional or a, a go-to nutrition strategy for most hockey players? And, uh, if so, is there a lot of, uh, is there, is there a lot of uh, alternatives or do people get pretty dogmatic about it? And then once we kind of have that, why don't we jump into kind of what you're up to and doing with nutrition and things like that? 
This is an area that I think is evolving and will be what strength training is and weight training is to the, uh, today's game. That'll be, you know, where nutrition goes, I think, very shortly here. As hockey players, you know, we're crammed into skates. We play late at night under all these, you know, different lights. We don't sleep well. We're, you know, chronically traveling. Uh, we're always hurt, which means there's stressors, you know, on our immune system and, and you know, our ability to, to heal ourselves uh, year in, year out. So uh, what I would say is players are becoming more and more curious. What was standard, and this is maybe why, was sort of your classic pasta pregame, you know, tons of carb, uh, not a lot of discussion around, you know, really any control of macronutrient, definitely not micronutrient. And now I think players are just getting so curious. You know, the best way to play poorly is to be sick or injured. And so guys are, you know, beers after the game. That's no longer a thing. That was pretty standard, uh, you know, 10, 15 years ago to have a six pack after a game. Now, what I'm doing, I've always been meat and vegetable focused. I am using more carbohydrate than I have before. I'm digesting it a lot better. I think my, uh, I guess my A1C level uh, marker has been pretty good. My resting glucose and blood glucose and things like that have been pretty good. I know a lot of like the what I do. I don't always know the why, and I'm really trying to, to educate myself there. Um, you know, from a from a so I can have a more comprehensive understanding. But mostly, my day mostly looks like. I'll have six ounces of like a grass-fed ground beef uh, organ blend in the morning. It's got kidney and heart, uh, livers in there. I'll have that in the morning with uh, like a tablespoon of extra virgin uh, olive oil, water, a bunch of salt, some hydrogen. Uh, what else is in there? Then I'll take like a carb amino acid uh, intra-workout shake. I've gotten pretty aggressive there with the, with the carbohydrate during training. And I've actually found I'm, I'm topping off some of those nutrients pretty well. And I, I like the way it feels. Oh, I do do a morning shake as well. Green smoothie. I forgot. Usually uh, broccoli sprouts. I like beta alanine in there. I got a greens powder. I use at home uh, a bunch of adaptogens, chaga, reishi, cordyceps, uh, and collagen. So that's kind of my, and then there's a, a multivitamin uh, mix. I'm forgetting. Post-workout, I'll try and go with about eight ounces of that same ground beef uh, paleo formula, I call it, with all the organs in it. Another tablespoon of extra virgin olive oil. I think I actually put two there. Two there, tons of salt because I'm a heavy sweater, so post-practice or, or training, I'll do that. And then in the evening, I'm starting to backload with, honestly, right now, I'm all the way up to like 95 grams of carb per meal with about 20 of them. Uh, coming from fruit, ideally, in meals three and four. And then I'll do that same green smoothie I did in the morning uh, after dinner. And then I kind of fill in the evening with lower fat, uh, more protein, simple uh, digesting carbs, sweet potato, uh, white rice, uh, digestive enzymes with that. Oh, I'm forgetting to spirulina in the morning and chlorella at night. That's kind of my, my go-to right now. This episode of the HPO podcast is sponsored by Swanson Health. Swanson Health has been producing quality vitamins, supplements, food and beverage products, healthy home products, and self-care products for over 50 years from the heart of America. Swanson complies with both FDA and FTC standards, ensuring that consumers can trust the label information and safety of all their products. They are committed to purity and potency from raw ingredients to the final product, they rigorously test their products internally and externally for purity and potency. They will ship orders all over the United States, Canada, and even internationally. 
I have been picking a few of their products that fit into my nutritional strategy, which have included their Pure Collagen Protein for Healthy Joints, Bone Broth Collagen Natural Flavor, which is sourced from bovine bones and no artificial colors or flavors, Mellow Mag to help defend against stress, and Omega Lemon Flavor from Molecular Distilled Fish Oil. If you want to try out any of Swanson Health's great products for yourself, use code HUMAN20, that's H-U-M-A-N-2-0, for 20% off all their products and free shipping on orders of $50 plus on Swanson.com. That's S-W-A-N-S-O-N dot C-O-M. Links and codes can also be found in the show notes. Awesome. Yeah, no, it sounds like you, you put some thought into the <laughs> development of that. Did you- it's hard to remember off the cuff, but yeah. I, I, it should be engraved by now. Did, did, you, did you work with someone to kind of formulate that for you specifically, or is that just kind of trial and error that you found is a good strategy that's worked well for you when it comes to kind of recovery and also performance? Both. I consult with, uh, over time, I work with a couple of different functional medicine therapists and, and they all, you know, the whole concept of functional medicine is that it's a little bit subjective, right? You have to read off the person and see what's, uh, they're able to integrate and be most consistent with. And this is, a you know, something I've been really happy with the way it's integrated into my life. You know, like we talked about, uh, I used to be a little bit more ketogenic uh, with my diet and that was, you know, kind of hard because my wife doesn't really eat that way. And, you know, so there was a lot of meals I was having to, you know, really have to modify. And, and that can be a strain at home, particularly when she's the chef at home and, uh, you know, doing dinner. And then uh, I was also found I was just consuming too many low quality oils when I was on the road. I just felt like I couldn't control unless I brought it with me everywhere, uh, the quality of oil that my food was touching. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I would imagine like when you start talking about getting up to 100 games, I mean, you're, you're on the road, that's two games a week, essentially. And that's just like, you know, averaging out over the course of the year, you obviously have an off season too, but like, I mean, you're just going from one place to the next. So you have to probably have like some options that are easily portable that you can lean on when you're not, you know, you can't just be eating at a restaurant and guessing at what you're getting half the time uh, when you're trying to do what you're doing. So it, you know, it's, it's interesting too. I think like just uh, the whole process of individualized nutrition as a whole, because like you really, it's, it's like this puzzle where you look at, first the person, and then also the activity or the lifestyle. And, you know, your lifestyle, I'm sure is a lot like mine, where, you know, there's parts of the year where it's drastically different than other parts. And then your nutrition kind of needs to shift during some of that as well. So like for me personally, like I lean closer to low carbohydrate um, than, than most endurance athletes, Um, not strict ketogenic, but I do flex in like a strict ketogenic diet during like off seasons or recovery weeks when the intensity is low and, the, the volume's relatively low as well. And I'm not just asking from asking myself from a, like a high intensity demand as, as much. And uh, you know, then, then kind of like changing or evolving as my, my plan does too. So uh, yeah. And I, w- I would think with your sport, you would just have like this kind of interesting balance between the amount of time you spend per day working out, which I would guess is getting, you know, pretty high in volume during certain parts of the year but it's not really very low uh, intensity. So you kind of have these weird 
this like weird gray area of, uh, of intensity where it's fast enough that you're going to be dipping into glycogen on a regular basis, but then, you know, it's, 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 uh, either spread out enough or low enough intensity at times where you can do a lot of it still. And that's just tends to put people in a little bit more of an interesting place. I think nutritionally. Yeah. And I think what's, what's even more incredible about this whole puzzle is that Usually it's the same sport I'm playing. It's the same person. I'm the one showing up as Connor Carrick every day. Uh, but over the course of time, like just how different some of my blood work will look or even, you know, food allergy panels, like different things that'll come back and you have to be fluid. You have to take in the information. Of course, it's a, it's a huge investment, you know, to be able to execute a lot of these things. You know, they are, it is, uh, there's great expense involved in the investment, you know, to be able to fuel properly, to do the proper testing. Uh, but I also know that, as I've been able to rely on better professional help, um, I've been able to sort through some of my own mistakes. You know, for example, I think I used to underuse carb for quite some time. I just wasn't, uh, I didn't realize actually how much fat I needed to eat to actually be ketogenic. I was, I was undershooting the fat and I was undershooting the carb as well. So I just kind of, you know, would feel flat sometimes or just had this like salt hunger. Like I needed a ton, um, you know, almost like a keto flu, but you know, it was, I don't know. It's horrible. Um, so I've been able to, uh, I would fast at one point. I got like a huge fasting kick where even if we were skating, so on average, you're playing three, four games a week. We pregame skate a lot of these days. Uh, and we have one guaranteed day off. So we're on the ice at least six days a week. And then let's say three days a week, we're skating before the game, which means we're on the ice like 10 to 11 times in six days. And like, I was just, I was brutally under fueling. I would fast all the way through like two o'clock through lunchtime. And it got to a point where, you know, it was, it was, it was personally difficult. My core was always through the roof. And I was like, I actually don't even remember who really gave me this advice or where I read it was so great. So I started to rely on the professionals to help me and I was able to get back to a better spot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it is interesting. Cause I think like a lot of times there's these, like, you know, we call them like biohacks or, you know, these interventional things that are either based in like tradition or based in like being good for someone for a certain thing. And I think when I kind of had a bit of a breakthrough with that sort of stuff, it, I became, I, I started looking at all of this stuff as tools versus like the right thing or the wrong thing to do. Yes. And, you know, fasting is an interesting one, I think for endurance as well, because like when you're, you know, for me, when I'm in peak training, if I'm burning two to three times my resting metabolic rate, there's just not a lot of room for fasting because, you know, at a certain point I have to get around to eating enough so I can get up the next day and do it again. And, uh, but for someone who's a little more sedentary and whose number one goal is to drop some weight, you know, maybe that's a good tool that they were going to want to leverage, but you know, the, it just, just because it's not a tool that I'm going to use, or you're going to use on a regular basis with success doesn't mean it's not one that someone else will and vice versa. And which is where I think the individualized nutrition stuff, it gets really, really interesting with that stuff. When you start looking at both the stressors they bring in as well as the benefits and looking at your lifestyles, like, can I afford another potential stressor that could put me over the top? And, you know, with your schedule of, you know, like uncertain sleep schedules and, you know, late nights, a lot of travel and things like that, I would think, if you're going to do any type of fasting, it's probably better done on the off season than the in season, if anything. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that is when I've done it. I've, I've done it uh, in this past off season, a lot of times on the weekend, like Saturday or Sunday, just wait all the way until dinner. Um, just to mix it in. 
but, but very similar where, you know, and you, and you just kind of never know in this tinkering process of when a light bulb is really going to go off. So when it comes to consistent performance for me, particularly in the off season, uh, one of the greatest enhancers has been increasing salt, you know, mm-hmm. increasing my salt with my morning beef. Uh, and I actually have put it in my intra workout shake. It's not even a, you know, a macronutrient, you know, but it was, it's been something that do I feel better doing it every day? Cause at the end of the day, no one, nobody cares. I'm not a professional eater. I'm not a professional you know, dieter in any way. No one cares what my diet is. The only thing they care about is my performance. Mm-hmm. Uh, so everything should serve that. And there got to a point where I think I was backwards. You know, I, I would, uh, I was, you know, before practice, I'm feeling flat, but I'm hoping that, you know, kind of the fasting effect kind of kicks in and I would get that, you know, spidey sense, I would call it where your brain really feels on. And all of a sudden it's like the first three, four minutes of practice. I'm like, Ooh, I still feel flat, <laughs> feel flat. And it's like, I'm playing this, you know, roulette with, uh, you know, with my career, it wasn't worth it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And well, I mean, it's, it's interesting to hear you say that too. Cause I mean, like we said earlier, you're a young guy. So like you obviously have, uh, you know, a lot of years ahead of you as well as, you know, this need to be able to make very, very accurate, educated decisions um, about what you're going to do, because, you know, if you're, if, yeah, if you stop performing, it won't take long before, you know, someone comes up and says, well, I'll take that spot. And then all of a sudden you're looking for a new career and, and you don't want to have that be something you can control. And then, and then not, and that, or you don't want to have that be preventable and look back at it thinking, well, what if I would have done it a different way? Would I have stuck around longer and that sort of a mindset? Yeah, and I think so much of it too was just trying to keep it simple. You know, like I, I watched The Last Dance. Did Michael Jordan get up and thank biohacking for his career? Like, <laughs> it, no, he, he, he took care of a lot of the big rock items. Uh, and I'm sure he did, you know, biohacking along the way for injuries and different things like that. Um, but it wasn't his focus when he got up in the morning. It was just, uh, you know, a means to an end that he was desiring in his, in his sport. Uh, and I'm interested to see, you know, for someday when LeBron's comes out, we learn how he's been able to do it longer and, and what he learned from even, you know, Jordan and things like that. Um, so I think really for me, it was just keeping it, consip- uh, keeping it simple. What can I be consistent with? What can I fold into my family life uh, without making them bend around me too much? Cause you know, pro sport can be pretty dominant on the home life as it is. So uh, sustainability is important for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I love it. I love what you just said there. I think it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's always interesting to me, I think, because I'll have people come to me sometimes, and they'll, they'll, be, they'll have questions, they'll want to know if I should do this, that or the other thing. And usually what I'll, I'll try to do is, well, well, first, we'll step back, especially if all the stuff that they want to know about are what I would consider like, very small movers. It's like, small movers aren't bad. Like if it's going to move you forward, that could end up being a benefit for you, especially if you're looking to get that last 1%. But if you're ignoring what you call the big rocks or the foundational items in order to try to grab these small things, you're going to find yourself taking like multiple steps back for a small step forward. So yeah, it's like getting the, getting the, the, the big movers done, right? Like, well, what is the training strategy that's going to get me ready for game day? That's going to really move me forward. What is you know, just getting in the right types of nutrients for the demands I'm going to ask of my body and what kind of sleep schedule do I need personally to make sure I'm restoring what I'm taking away when I'm beating myself down to get ready for, or to get stronger for a, for a future event or something like that. And I, 
I find that interesting when you kind of start looking at, well, what are the ones that are going to move the needle the most and what are the least and, and when can I start playing these in or what's the order of operations more or less? Yeah. And I think so much of when I think of nutrition too, is it's really so I can serve my athletic performance and my, you know, brain function and, you know, stress kind of begets stress. If I'm going to go around all day, you know, getting worked up that I'm not hitting a particular nutritional guideline or, you know, I'm not totally positive uh, that the salad when I got to eat out, you know, cause we're on the road in Los Angeles the night before a game is organic or not. Like what, what you start to realize is, you know, before the big game in Utah, like Michael Jordan was crushing pizza. Like Michael Jordan could have had two bottles of wine. He's still going to go out and be Michael Jordan the next day. So that there's an element of, you know, athletic stubbornness, mental will uh, that you need to have and train as an athlete, as a, as a pro sport athlete, where, you know, be flat out, like being a stress case all the time doesn't, doesn't support that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One, one other follow-up question with nutrition stuff that I wanted to ask you, cause you mentioned uh, like blood sugar levels. Have you played around with any continuous glucose monitors? So I'm on round three. I had two uh, recently and I I had it in my arm and for whatever reason, I think with the spandex and the the tight hockey gear, it it keeps, uh, I get to like day four. I think, I think it's fascinating. I check it like every three seconds Uh, (laughs) because I I just think it's, I just want to know what's going on inside. Um, But the monitor will go like strictly low after like three or four days. So I don't know if I've knocked it around enough. Mm. Uh, that it's it's dislodged or not functioning properly, or maybe I oversweat into it. But I'm I'm getting the uh, prescription refilled, and I'm gonna try again because I had my you know I, I work with a functional medicine doctor who ordered it, and uh, I find it fascinating. So I might have to go with the old school prick method, you yeah. know, just uh, you know around meals and things like that. But it's a new it's a new art form for me that I haven't uh, dove into too deep yet. Do, do you remember which brand you were using for CGM? I can tell you right now. I think it was Freestyle. Okay. or so oh you know yeah, yeah. that's levels yeah mm-hmm. so yeah they, you put it like on the yeah. back of your arm you put like a little black in the back of your arm mm-hmm. yeah and it, it's like one of those little punches yeah yeah so yeah that's interesting that like yeah i guess like i mean if you're getting bumped around on the ice and stuff like that you're probably going to tug around on that i you know i i just wore one for the first time for i just got done with my first 14 day stretch that's how long the, the ones i have last mm-hmm. and it was getting a little ratty by the end there, but it wasn't falling off, thankfully. So I'm, I'm not doing contact sport though. So I'm just sweating on it a lot. And apparently- Which one was, did you use? Cause maybe, maybe I'll try to switch over. Uh, mine was the, it was by Levels. Uh, I think levels, it's okay. probably the same one you have if you, cause it, it links up with that, the Libre app that you mentioned. So yep, yep. unless multiple brands link up with that, I'm not sure. Um, but it comes with like this little black fabric patch that you put over it that helps really kind of protect it a little more. Yeah, I didn't um, have that. Yeah. You so maybe that's a punch thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I can, I can put you in touch with them if you, if you want, cause I'm sure they'd love, love to that. Yeah, get love the that. data off of you. I'm, I'm going to be talking with them later this week about just my first experience because boy, it is eye opening Cause you realize how much stuff affect that outside of just what you eat too. I had a, a day where I just like not intentionally, but I just did not sleep nearly as much as I normally would. And the next day, like that, that thing was just whacked out. Like, I was just like, I couldn't even, I was like, there's nothing I can do to control this thing other than maybe go to bed. Like, <laughs> yeah, just start again tomorrow. Well, so yeah. that's, that's where nutrition gets funky for someone like me. Cause, uh, perception really affects how we eat, right? Like if I, you can have a high volume day, but if you feel like a million bucks and you go out there and you nail practice, mm-hmm. you don't even realize your caloric output was that high. 
Mm-hmm. So what I found in my career is oftentimes I will undereat on the high performance days or the you know high calorie output days, but then the next day because I'm under recover, I'll go to a practice that's maybe not that demanding where I'm just like you. I, I did sleep well and, and my blood sugar's down, and I'll overeat that day. And it's like this permanent compensation pattern I'm in where, you know, now the, the high performance day, you know, because I ate a ton the day before I want to eat less because I don't want to put on a bunch of weight during the season. Cause they do have a name for the hawk for the NHL. It's called the never hungry league. Like there's always food around, you know? So <laughs> even to add to these, uh, you know, fasting practices I had going, like you had to say no to omelets in the morning, the bacon and French toast and you know, everything that's at you know NHL breakfast and, and then, you know, go through lunch or whatever. But uh, yeah, I would love that because I've, uh, I'm, I'm trying to get to the bottom of it. And I'm sure they'd have better answers for me because I'm still a rookie at it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting too, just to see from my own experience, like, you know, what causes like a big spike on it versus more or less a flat line after I eat. And then also like, how quickly does it respond? Cause one thing I've noticed is when, when I do eat something that, uh, that causes to spike up, um, it comes back down so fast. So it's like, I, I, I must have good, good control of it at that point. If it's coming down, it's not like staying up. Um, but you know, it definitely came down much slower on the day where I didn't sleep as much. So I think like the way it was described to me is there's going to be like, you're going to have your own personal kind of signature as to like where your ideal is based on your lifestyle and your own personal like situation. But what I think ultimately is going to be really cool with these things is once you find out, like, let's say you find out on game day, when you're between like, say 95 and 105 or something on the, on the CGM, that's when you feel like you can just like make all the moves and things are just running smoothly. So then, you know, like, I want to stay in that range on competition day and you can actually check it. And if you're, if you're below, you can, you can use, you know, fuel to try to pop it up a little bit. Or if you're high, you know, maybe you want to have this food group instead of that food group or something like that. And, and just figure out what, what foods jive with you and which ones don't and start formulating a little more of an individual program. That's going to kind of keep you where you're feeling best for longer periods of time. And it just takes a little bit of the guesswork out of it. And uh, I've been excited to play around with it, but uh, yeah, I'm sure they'd love to see like what a professional hockey players like numbers look like versus just your average person. Yeah, I'll do it. No problem. I'll do it. And, and my only issue is I don't want to do the 14 day. Like I think once I have one in, I'll always want to know like until oh, yeah, eternity. Yeah. You know? I just think it's so cool. <laughs> yeah. I'm popping on another 14 day for sure. I'm actually going to do, so I, I did the first one with 14 days to uh, basically just to get an idea. I didn't change a whole lot of, I just kind of did what I was normally doing just to get a right. glimpse into like, you know, what was happening when I just kind of operated intuitively And this time around though, I'm going to control a little more. I think I'm going to just try to see like exactly which foods put me where I want to be or where I feel best. And I start identifying those sort of things and and get a little bit of a trend going with that and see if I can recognize, recognize like when I'm feeling good and bad. And if there's a signature to those different States and and ultimately avoid the ones when are that are bad and focus more on the ones that are good. But uh, you know, I had a, Dr. Dominic Diagostino on the show uh, previously, and he's done a lot of work with CGMs and also just like, uh, you know, keto, low carb stuff for performance and things. So he was saying that like, cause I'm, I'm planning this transcontinental run next year where I'm gonna run from San Francisco to New York and I'm going to target the record, which is like just over 72 miles a day. So I have to be like 
making sure I'm getting enough food in and able to kind of repeat the next day versus just trash myself one day and then, you know, barely move the next kind of a, a style. And he was saying that with a CGM for something like that would be such an advantage because if I can, if I can find out like where I want to be with that, I could essentially have someone either offsite or, or onsite monitoring and saying, okay, you're right here. We want to bump you up a little bit. Therefore you're going to have this now versus me saying, all right, I'm feeling a little flat. Maybe I'll have that. And then maybe it works. Maybe it doesn't. And, and really have that concrete data kind of supporting it. So I think there's a lot of promise. It's what you do stuff. with a car, right? It's what you yeah, do with yeah. a NASCAR. I'm sure all the monitors and things like that. What's the difference? Mm -hmm. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So we're, we're getting close to turning ourselves into machines essentially, but uh, yeah, we, hopefully we can get one that'll stick on you and stay on you during a game and, and, and not give you grief on that side. Cause I think that'd be kind of a cool experiment. Totally agree. I, I think it's cool. Even where, when, when you talk about different unique demands, uh, who is it that just, uh, had to uh, walk off for the Dodgers or not the Dodgers who's in the world series right now guy uh, went airplaning around the outfield. You know what I'm talking about? He had to get like an IV after the game because he was so worked up yeah. that his resting heart rate was like 140 beats per minute. He thought he was going to pass out. Oh, like there's been, they've done tests with uh, heart rate monitors and they'll take guys on, on a shift and they'll be sitting there on the bench. And all of a sudden, all they'll do is pick a knee up to go jump over the wall. So, you know, because coach called their name, it's their shift, like 40 beats per minute, jack mm -hmm. right up. Yeah. You know, like there was nothing metabolic about that high knee that, that jacked that heart rate up. Like it's just the, you know, intensity of the moment. I think we're going to learn. We're just at the inception of these wearables, aura ring and whoop. And mm -hmm. I'm so excited to see, you know, what information we're going to be able to, you know, look under this hood of a body that we'll be able to do so, you know, super soon. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting stuff. Uh, yeah. I'm looking forward to continuing to learn more about kind of what I'm doing right and wrong. So <laughs> hopefully it leads to better results. That's always the goal, right? Absolutely. Um, one other question I have, cause I know, I know you hockey guys take pride in your scars and sometimes even missing teeth And my YouTube viewers are going to want to know, is there a story behind that nice chin scar you got there? Oh, this whole thing. Yeah. I got, uh, <laughs> I got 18 zips in a, uh, I was, I was coming back. I actually, I took a shot off the finger in practice and my whole finger, this was before the injury. So my whole finger had filleted open, uh, totally smashed it. It was almost like I, uh, got, I stuck it in a snowblower. That's what the oh. surgeon said. So luckily this is actually pretty cool. He goes, you know, Connor, we're going to, we're going to, you know, they uh, stitched my fingernail back on. They fixed, uh, with a couple screws, uh, Pins, I'm sorry. I had two pins coming on my finger. They fixed the break underneath. It took me like, I think, four to six weeks to come back. They said that if I wasn't like a pro athlete, what they would have done was just amputate the tip of my pinky and they just would have scarred over it. And they were like, yeah, you'd have been back at work in a week. You'd have been fine. But obviously, given the fact I'm a hockey player, right shot, like I needed that length of my pinky for grip strength. So as I'm coming back from that injury, I go on a conditioning stint down in the American Hockey League uh, to go play a couple of games, and I go stick on puck. Uh, you know, a guy's going to shoot, and I'm going to deter it. You know, think Dennis Rodman throwing a, a hand in someone's face, and the puck ramps right up off my stick and just smokes me. I wear a visor down here, so it smokes me here. And I, I it was, you know, our, uh, puck went to our goalie after that. We kind of have, like, a cross-checking uh, match in front, and I end up on the bottom like this dog pile. And I get up, and the ref looks – the ref gives me like one of these, like, oh my God. 
And he's probably seen it all and, too. So. Yeah, yeah. And he's like, oh man. And so I'm like, oh, I don't know if we swear on this podcast, but I say the F word. I'm like, you know, that's not good. And I get up and another player looks dead at me from the other team. He's like, dude, you got to get that looked at. So, so I started skating down the rink and uh, it, it really did hurt. Like I, I had, a, I got 18 zips here from the exact same play, like stick on puck ramped up, hit me in the face years ago. Uh, this one didn't really hurt that bad. This one kind of hurt my whole head. And I think just from the fascia, like hurt me like in my skull. I didn't have a concussion from it. Like I felt fine and stuff like that, but just like tissue wise, almost like you were wearing a hat too tight for too long. Um, yeah. 18 stitches and uh, played the rest of the game, came back out. It's kind of hockey culture, you know, standard. Yeah. Uh, so I was able to, you know, come back out and play the rest of the game and, now I got this this mean looking scar that my my wife doesn't love, but you know it's part of me, part of my story. Yeah, that that's that's an awesome story. Um, I had a he, there's there's not a whole lot of stories like that in ultra running, but uh, I did have a a race back in 2016 um, out in Southern California, and it, the course had this spot where you could climb up to like kind of the peak of the course, and you go down this like kind of semi technical descent. Uh, and I'm going down the descent and I must've just been like a little loopy. I, I actually had been in China the like few days earlier. So I was probably just a little loopy in general from all the travel, but I just caught a stone wrong. And the way I describe it is like when you fall running on the trail, there's kind of like two types of falls. There's the ones that are really slow and you kind of see it happening and you have time to kind of roll and position yourself so that it doesn't suck quite as bad. And then there's the falls where they happen so fast that you don't even realize it happened until you're laying on the ground and wondering what the heck just, just went on. And I had one of the second ones where I fell and I, hit my, <laughs> I, I smacked my head on a rock and just gashed it. You can, you probably can't see it on my, because they did this weird like stitching technique. Yeah. You can't probably yep. see it on here, but they did this, like this internal stitching technique, uh, that really kind of limited the scarring. But, uh, when I, the, the funny thing is, it was like mile 25 on the course. So I had to walk back to the aid station with like a, I had a, luckily I had a bandana. So I just took the bandana and just to keep the bleeding. Cause you know, your forehead just bleeds like crazy. Yeah. And uh, I got back to the aid station. They took a look at it and they're like, Ooh, and they just like bandaged me up. They sent the rain up one of the park rangers up to take me back down. They had the, they made me stay on site for a few hours just to make sure I wasn't concussed. And then they let me go and I hadn't seen the gash yet. So I was going, I went back to my hotel room thinking, all right, I'll take a look at it. And if it's really bad, I'll go get stitches. If not, I'll just, you know, clean it up real good and then, you know, go on with life. And I got to the hotel, I took it off and the gash was just insane. Like, um, I've got some pictures of it on Facebook. Maybe I'll have to like tag it to the show notes so the listeners can see yeah, it. Yeah. But as soon as I looked at it, like I, it took me about five seconds to grab my wallet and keys and head back down to the car and go to the emergency room <laughs> to get it fixed. <laughs> so that's yeah, why we have, we have. We have doctors on, on staff, you know, so I was uh, ready, <laughs> but it, there is a difference. I think part of the reason I have a scar and, and God bless the guy that, you know, did it for me, but he brought out, it, it's the American league. So just, you know, usually the town and, and quality of medical care isn't exactly the same as, as the big club up top. Uh, that's generally true across the board. And then, you know, this guy, for whatever reason, he, uh, he pulled out like a fishing tackle box. I'm like, I swear to God, if he pulls a fish hook out of there and stitch me up, we're going to have a fucking problem. This, this guy made up. Um, but no, he, he stitched it up, but I don't think there was any internal, uh, you know, stitching use. It's, 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 it's there. It's part of me. Yeah, no, it fits, it fits the, the style of the sport, I think, perfectly. So um, awesome. 
Well, Connor, I want, I don't want to take up too much of your time because you've been really generous sharing some of your stories and your training and all everything in between. Um, if you want to, if there's anything else you want to chat about, we certainly can, but otherwise, if you want to let the listeners know where they can find you, if you have a website or social media and things like that, uh, I'd love to tag those in the show notes so people can go check out what you're up to. Zach, appreciate it. Uh, someone doing the things that you're doing, you know, your, your curiosity, you're, you're such an inspiration. So, you know, always enjoy talking. Um, on Instagram, Twitter at Connor Carrick, uh, my first name, last name, uh, the curious competitor podcast. Uh, if I didn't uh, bore you enough here, you can join me over there. We have a good time. Uh, Zach and I actually have a, a great podcast together. If you want to go back and check that out, but Zach, thanks for having me, man. And, and have a great rest of your day. Awesome. You too. Thanks again for taking some time. Anytime. Man. Thank you for listening to this episode of the human performance outliers podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please consider checking out my website at ZachBitter.com or my social media channels at ZachBitter on Instagram, at ZBitter on Twitter, and at Zach.Bitter on Facebook. You can also support the show by subscribing and leaving a review on your favorite podcast platform. If you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to send me an email at HPOPodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.